Hello, you're listening to the Consequential Podcast. With me, as ever, Roger Hart. Good afternoon. And we don't have Lucy this week, we have Mr. S.J. Harris instead. Good what home. Would you like to introduce yourself? I'm the author of Eustace, a graphic novel which came out last year. Um, and I'm working on its sequel, uh, which will be out maybe this decade, <laughs> if we're lucky. So, um... We are, there's, there's a certain amount of noise that we don't usually have. We're not, uh, we're normally just accompanied by the gentle thrum of the air conditioning unit, but uh, today we are in uh, Rules Restaurant and Cocktail Bar getting gently sloshed on very elaborate cocktails. Thanks because, right. you know, we're, today we're, we're here to talk about Englishness and why not do that, surrounded by red velvet sofas and really quite elaborate gins. In the oldest continually operating restaurant in London? Yes, in the country, apparently. Really? And there's nothing so cooling as wood panelling, is there? <laughs> On this crotch-melting summer day. Yes, it's, um, it's a particularly warm day. and You, you look like you've been spritzed. I, I'm self-spritzing at this moment. I'm self-sufficient in... You're spritzing me, in fact. Yes. Mm. Um, you well, seem remarkably cool and collected. <laughs> Well, you two have dressed for the Riviera, and I'm wearing my standard uniform of jeans, and I'm honestly rather warm. Well, I'm, I'm planning on murdering and impersonating the, um, the heir to an American industrial fortune. You're dressed correctly for that, mm. yes. Just remember that they use some of the, uh, some of the spoons go in different order when you're on a ten-course meal, so you'll have to be careful with that or you might be found out. God, and there's all, and there's all that bollocks with not spelling words with you in properly. I remember which spoon is the eye gouge. We could talk about mm. that, but actually I was wondering, right. anyway, so I might ask you what you've been writing. Well, I've been slowly writing the sequel to Eustace, which is called Eustace in the Smoke. Mm. He's uh, now 27, out of bed, and lounging around in Soho. And the whole thing still takes place in single rooms, but they are pubs, gentlemen's right. clubs various drinking establishments. So we, we sort of fated Eustace quite heavily last year. You did, um, you were very kind. Um, I enjoyed it a good deal. Yeah, and it's it's an unsettling book, I think that's fair to say, <laughs> isn't it? Um, well, I hope so. <laughs> uh, it's, um, it felt to me, anyway, as though it sort of derived in part from early to mid 20th century children's writing in that you have a sort of there's, there's a frequent refrain of a very clever child protagonist who explains the systems of the adult world um, which is you know fine in those kid books Eustace it only really goes so far he doesn't really understand how peculiar and awful the world he's in is mm. um, so he has sort of very clever systems for dealing with his aunts and mm. you know what you have to put up with to get money out of the aunts and it's really fine and then so do you enjoy you know, the best tree of aunts at the beginning yeah <laughs> and that sort of that sort of feels very much in that tradition and then it starts to break down at the edges with the introduction of ever more threatening individuals. Yeah, he is a complete innocent. I think I had a tagline, which I can't remember if it was ever used anywhere, but he's a narrator not so much unreliable as just dreadfully innocent. Mm. And the last to realise the deprivations, the deprivations of the world. Anyway, possibly deprivations and depredations. Depredations? I think that's what I was going for, Jeeves. He's the last to realise, and... <laughs> Even when, essentially, he is a brothel keeper, 
Yes. Yeah. Unwittingly. So what sort of... Um, do we do we learn a bit about what's taken him from, from there to here, or is it sort of straight into what he's got going on in his present day? A little. Um, it's a very... It's a similar structure to the first half of Eustace, where it's Eustace talking to the reader. Mm. Um, but it's going to be generally more flashback-based, uh, and they will be sort of wider-ranging and going back further. Right. Um, for instance, I'll just tantalise you with we discovered the origin of Eustace's shy bladder Poland. Oh, I've been to boarding school. Yes, and you've already threatened to use a cocktail stir as a sounding rod on me, so uh, <laughs> I think we know what's wrong with you. That's well, quite a list. Yes, I've got a catalogue. <laughs> you, uh, you suggested that we talk about sort of Englishness and national identity mm. um, as it features uh, sort of... It, it, Eustace is certainly heavily derived from English literature. Yes, yeah. It's English literature and... British films, mm. so, well, I as am I, in fact. I mean, the thing I got off, I, I, I said to you when I said on Twitter, when I when we first started speaking, was um, the thing I got off it very strongly was, um, was A Whiff of Saki, which is mm. that kind of main line into what, sort of, is that 30s or 40s, or maybe a little earlier, he's earlier. British? Uh, he's a well, yes, no, because he died century. in the First World War, didn't he? Yeah, um, he, he went a bit butch in his later days. Mm. And, uh, Splendid last words. I do which one? But remind me. Um, put that bloody cigarette out. In the trenches. It, good advice. Yes. History doesn't record whether the smoker was also killed. <laughs> no. no, I don't believe it does. But it's so. The, the, or whether he put the cigarette out. <laughs> a lot of, a lot of, um, particularly the sort of the Clovis stories or um, other bits and bobs. There's often this slightly faux worldly wise teenage or child mm. protagonist. Uh, the iconic one, the one that was made famous, I think, because Stephen Fry wrote about it quite heavily in The Liar, is um, Conradin, the young man who. Um, Fenzot, who gets his evil aunt savaged by a polecat and then calmly eats toast. Yes, the, the ferret polecat. Yes, Shreddy Shreddy Vashtar. Vashtar. Yes. Um, I think. Yes. Did um, I say Shreddy? I, I'm not sure. Pack of but, cereal that he serves me his But there's that kind of thing. Um, and th there's something in that creation of those particular type of children, but also the sort of tumble-down manor house out in the countryside that you sort of imagine it in with this flotilla of aunts and an overbearing family tree that does feel like it occupies a particularly British cultural nook. There's mm. sort of Evelyn War, Saki, um, there's the Jeeves and Worcester stuff. There's all sorts of stuff in that, that sort of bubble of... Mm, I don't know exactly how to... I don't know what you'd call it, but there, there's definitely a tradition there. Yeah, but it's... These kind of things are hard to pin down. coward as well. Yeah. This is the kind of problem, I think, with this whole notion of Englishness or national identity at all. It's a moth-like concept that when you... It seems perfectly tangible enough until you try to get hold of it. Hmm. Um, and it's something that makes me a bit uncomfortable. Because I feel like... Well, obviously, it's straight, it's straight constrained to nationalism. And, mm. and those sort of ideas. People have their own ideas of what England is and should be. Um, and they're always focusing on the bits they would like it to be, and not the things that it really is. Mm. I suppose those Saki like. Saki more than Woodhouse gets the, the dark side. Yeah. Which has an honesty to it, hypocrisy, and 
and so on and so forth. But yeah, I mean, what has to, so there's there's stuff like um, Reginald Spode, the the, the petty that's fascist. True, yeah, in, yeah, but that's one of the things that interests me about that is that he's. Obviously, that's pointing and laughing at the reactionary end and the sort of the Mosley-esque gubbins mm. from the era. But it's a very safe, I'll come back to this, I think, but it's a very safe form of subversion. Mm. There's no real unsettlement of the social order in mocking Reginald's bode. No. He's, he's such a such a pantomime villain. Well, Woodhouse was himself, you know, very heavily criticised during World War II mm. for not doing much to escape. What, what was considered collaborating because he just sat around under light guard writing. Um, he got into, into some trouble there, didn't he? He got yeah. into a bit of a scrape. Yes. <laughs> um, but, you know, he was he was not, you know, your typical dashing lance corporal mm. confounding Jerry at every turn and, you know, trying, trying to escape constantly. And it was basically considered borderline collaboration to not really do a lot whilst a prisoner of war. Seems a little unsporting to me, to be honest. I can't imagine he was having the best time. But yet. Well, there was a certain amount of him writing to say, I'm fine, I'm being treated rather well, um, which I think meant under the, under the conditions of the Geneva Convention, mm. rather than I'm having a jolly old time, but it was not reported kindly in the British press. No, he seems to have been either coerced or, or duped or, or naively yes. gone along with it. Or it's not very clear. I, th- I think that tends to be the, the sort of modern reading is that he was just a little bit trusting and a little bit um, just naive really mm. in, in thinking that everything was fine and if he wrote back saying yes it's okay the Germans are being perfectly lovely mm. that nothing would spill out of that. And possibly you know, he was also a victim of Underestimating his own fame or success, I don't know if that's if that's true. But he didn't maybe see himself as someone who it would matter that much if he if he stayed where he was. Yeah, possibly. So it's some. Um, so you, you talked about um, sort of the the different notions of English, and obviously, it's kind of it's it is almost farcical in the sense to try and define it because everyone has their own notions of what it would be and it's going to be a combination of your experience and how you were raised but I mean given that what we were talking about the idea of um, the the sort of the Saki books and the character who's naive or out of their depth um, and that sort of dark humor it's a cultural moment that we all recognize even if we struggle to define it there yeah. are things out there I'm, I mean I'm a little leery of pointing wary of pointing too hard to that or stuff. Cherry. Mm, very possibly. One problem, I don't want to get into this too hard, but um, the sort of cricket jerseys and cucumber sandwiches and light cocktail humour Englishness that I've sort of talked about is very much a circumscribed class experience and there's there's a whole there are, there are whole other ends of it that um, basically just fall less well within my reading. To an extent, I mean, I recognise it, and I'm Irish, so, um, I mean, I was mostly raised in England, but the experience of, uh, my parents, um, grandparents are all from Ireland, lived in Ireland most of their lives, um, and I went to a state school, and so I've got a different family background, but very different educational background, still it's... Whereas I'm budget Charles Ryder. 
But I think I think there is a risk of certainly of me at least talking about a kind of Englishness that is very much a product of the kind of boarding school in Oxbridge self-parody factory. To an extent. Um, yeah, so one thing, obviously you can't, you can't define it for absolutely everyone, but you can define nuggets of national character, yeah. and you can certainly define them through the art you consume. So I realised a couple of days ago that probably a considerable amount of my political and moral thinking was inferred to me from Raymond Briggs. Um, there was a sort of... I, I read a lot of Raymond Briggs when I was a child, and so um, things like Fungus the Bogeyman, which is it's kind of like uh, the ragged trousered philanthropist, but for children, um, and and when the wind blows, which has sort of again the the dark humour that you sort of associate with British stuff, but sort of First righteous anger. Island, actually. Yeah. Day trip. That's been quite a, an odd exposure to graphic novels. I didn't see it as that, I just saw mm. it as a comic, I suppose. Yeah. But um, at that age, when I was 12. Mm. I've not actually read it. It's mm. harrowing, mm. genuinely harrowing, and it's, it, it's so quiet and still, and there's a righteous anger throughout the entire thing. Um, you know, you know the, the vague idea of it. Yeah. There's the exact. Um, People following the exact yeah the the, the exact sort of protect and survive style yes that, that was handed out by the government in the early eighties mm. um, and uh, slowly dying in a sense of genuine hopefulness that everything's going to be fine despite the fact that they've been given this information as something to do while they quietly die yes, um, more, more innocence which is it's funnier than threads. Um, this is one of my favourite films, but it has an extremely dark sense of humour running through it. It does. I think it is. Um, it's definitely more. I mean, obviously, the, the central story is harrowing, but there's a sort of a satirical edge to it as well. In that, this is what your government would do to you. I mean, he did another one, which was um, the Iron Lady and the Tin Pot General. I think it's mm-hmm. called, which is just a kid's book of the Falklands War. Um, and just someone from the home counties being quietly furious at everyone and everything definitely imprinted on me as a child. Yeah, that's his... Uh, that's a, that was a good, a good call to mention him. Um, but also, it does get it when the wind blows, has that, that sense of English order where they go outside and they they think that the smell of burning meat is everyone having their Sunday roast early on account of the bomb. Mm. They are that's they are stupid. Um, he kind of denied at the time that they were based on his parents, but when and the Ethel no, yes, came out, yeah, it was they were very obviously the same couple, and so he yeah. had sat down and wrote, wrote written his parents slowly dying from fallout radiation. And well, which of us happened? <laughs> yes, but I think he did it with considerably less gusto than you did. <laughs> the poisoned umbrella approach. Jolly old racing. So a few weeks ago we had uh, Graham Slate on the show and he basically challenged us to come up with uh, a better version of 
the Comics Unmasked exhibition that's currently running in the British Library. It's only fair given how hard we laid into it. Um, and given that we're given that that is essentially around comics and British identity and British comics, mm. it this seems like a wonderful opportunity to try and define sort of what we would consider to be faintly can, uh, canonical and uh, really worth highlighting in terms of British comics. Mm. Um, well, just just Halo Jones forever, basically, just just all Halo Jones all the time. So Halo Jones is well, Halo Jones is. Um, Definitely a particularly good example of um, stuff around social structure, mm. which I mean, I don't know if anyone else has picked up on this, but there's a bit of a class divide in Britain. Have you guys spotted that at all? Um, <laughs> class divide, you think? <laughs> we asked, sat here in rules, drinking Negronis, yeah. sounding like this. So, Halo, Halo Jones is sort of the starry eyed working class girl mm. who wants to see the world. But the sci-fi version, obviously, um, and there are quite a lot of um, a lot of early Alan Moore definitely had that. We were talking about the Bert Jeffrey saga earlier mm. off microphone, and that has a lot of it. And it has, I, I think, it's a particularly good example because it sort of borrows on sort of the the, the DC Thompson stuff, the Beano and the Dandy. Um, to, to do a sort of supernatural soap opera almost, but around a working class family of ghouls, werewolves and so on, who are mm. essentially spending their lives living in a terrace flat hiding from the council. Um, and it's kind glorious. Of shades of being human there, I suppose. Uh, it's, it's a lot after, but certainly in the, in the recent reissue it starts with um, something that was sort of written part way through but added to the beginning of father and son going out to do traditional things and as the story progresses traditional things for their family are gradually un unravel as being genuinely quite odd as um, essentially they're going fishing but they're going fishing on a roof uh, tying tying moths up as lures and careful not to get it too tight around his crotch uh, uh, and then they go bat fishing um, Oh, that's rather uh, splendid. You catch the bat, you thump it on the on the chimney stack, and then you throw it away. But Dad, why do we do this? It's tradition. Shut up and drink your bovril. And it's um, <laughs> this glorious sort of... It's, it's the, the families are odd trope, obviously, but it's also mm. a glorious take on just general weirdness in British life and things that are normal for your family not being normal for other people. I don't think bat fishing is a thing, but if you bring your own bovril, you're more than welcome to do it. And your own moths. Moths are awesome. Genitalia intact. God, I love moths. You're never going to be able to tie something around them. Like no, 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 they, they disintegrate when you touch them. Very, very fiddly. But yes, there's definitely... There's definitely like a terrific. <laughs> well, of course the genitalia are a key way of identifying between the species. Uh, or Nabokov yeah. was very insistent upon this yeah. point. It's no, it's true. It's a shock with uh, DNA analysis or whatever. No, no, got to look at the genitalia. No, it's true. Insect, uh, insect genital proteins are the fastest evolving proteins on the planet. I don't know whether they, do they, I imagine they sort of unfurl like one of those things you blow into at a party and makes a horrid noise. Exactly like that. Yes. You have to, you have to just clamp your lips on and yeah. uh, saliva everywhere and, and... Well, this was basically your thesis. It was, yes. Yes. <laughs> that, I, I wrote about insect genitals at university. That was... What made me the man I am today? Obsessed with insect cock. Sorry. 
It's rather put, in, put a full stop on that, <laughs> didn't it? <laughs> um. So we've got Halo Jones. Um, and then there's the whole stable of 2000 AD stuff. Oh. So I love 2000 AD. I love 2000 AD unashamedly. I sort of segued almost straight from the B-note, which is generally anarchic, generally subversive, but in a very bounded way. Again, bounded subversion. Straight into, straight into 2000 AD, which is the same thing. Mm. Um, and 2000 AD, like at first glance, Judge Dredd is, you know, enormous muscle-bound hero, but it's very obvious looking at it for more than sort of a moment that it's it's asking you to sympathise with and cheer for explicit fascism. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think, is is a very British thing, is to have entirely entirely unsubtle satire um, to just really sort of sledgehammer at home. And it started when the Dirty Harry films were at the cinema um, and people looked at them and went, this guy is a fascist. I did. I went to the, uh, as part of the British Library ongoing exhibition, um, where he has a, a talk about the Oz trial, which is when Robert Crumb and Gilbert Shelton were there. The first half of the evening was... Crumb being a bit bullish and speaking over Gilbert Shelton in the second half with this wonderful plummy QC talking about his part in the, in the Austral and the, the absolutely rabid judge that they had had and the complete surrealism of it. So, you, I mean, it might be heavy handed satire, but it's satire of a very heavy handed thing in itself. Mm. Complete peculiarity of that trial. Yeah. It's obscene to publish a picture of Rupert the Bear with a, with a huge erect cock. Just imagine having that discussion in court. And they did, and they went into such detail, and they had expert witnesses on both sides, and it's just ridiculous. It's just some drawings. And they, uh, the whole system, well, also, as the guy said, it was um, Metro, Metropolitan Police at the time were incredibly corrupt, and every department of it was doing the thing they were meant to be preventing. Yes. So, the, the vice squad was perpetrating vice and yeah. serious crime squad doing serious crimes and so on. Um, and every now and then they God, had to... God only knows what parking enforcement were doing. I can't imagine. <laughs> parking on old ladies <laughs> and, and probably stopping to paint the yellow lines on first and then parking. Uh, it seemed a system ludicrously, ridiculously, blatantly doing things which need possibly ludicrous, ridiculous, blatant satire to get, to get anywhere near touching So a couple of issues, uh, there was another sort of series of legal issues in the 80s where Knockabout Press used to have their stuff seized. Um, partly they were running imports and it was things were being caught up as uh, lewd materials that were being imported into the country. I think some of their own publications were taken and pulped as well. Yeah, they talked a bit about that. It was, it didn't seem to be so much of a problem to publish it here, but if it was coming in, then yeah. some sort of nasty alien uh, incursion. So, what have we, we, we've defined? The British comics involve class structure, they involve subversion, they involve vile, puerile stuff. Um, Peter Doherty has been struggling with this terrible, terrible skank turd. Yes, yes. Knockabout published uh, Crown Table stuff as well, so that's... Uh, 
that must be terrifying. Well, I was eking it out. Oh, I just I I bought the thing as soon as it came out and just tore through it in in one sitting. Um, well, that must have been equally troublesome. Yes, but there are things wrong with me, so it's it's fine. Um, it probably almost goes without saying that he himself is a terribly nice fellow. Yeah, I don't think I've ever encountered him um, outside of his persona as um, as Crent Abel, the sort of underbite goblin creature. Um, so he himself as a person I don't I just haven't encountered. Well, he's a weird underbite goblin creature, but he's very nice. Talking about alien incursions, it does occur to me that there's something always, at least in my reading of Englishness, generally an outsider element. Yeah. In terms of actors, that tends to be being outside the upper class. I'm talking about people that had to go through Radha and remove their, their regional accent. Um, but the people that we consider to be the most British, like David Niven, they're, they're not what they seem. And I think there's something about um, Brian Bond's Mr. Mamoulian, which, which captures this. That well, I've not actually read that. It seemed to, according to the, the, collected, the collected work, it seems to have started as just an exercise in exercising writer's block. Right. Which then built upon itself. And, and what sort of roughly does it work through? What kind of thing is, is it? It's a very lugubrious looking chap who has some sort of suspiciously foreign surname. And he sits around in a big black coat and sort of shades of Hancock. Um, but it, it's, it's kind of hard to pinpoint. Sometimes he's sitting in a pub and there's this weird possibly fascist, possibly delusional, psychopathic guy that, that talks to him. As it goes on, it builds these little recurring motifs which go absolutely nowhere. Um, so I'm only really familiar with Brian Bolland from, again, 2000 AD, where he was you know, probably my favourite artist. Um, as a child, he was one of the few whose style I could sort of recognise when I was only eleven or twelve. I mean, his what you might call his pure style is so precise. It's yeah, detailed and gorgeous. It's quite like Charles Burns in a way, in that it's um, mm. it's really quite still almost, but everything looks broadly iconic mm. um, and just very detailed. It's very similar sort of shading style of the sort of jagged, ink-washed lines that are very, very precise and geometric. Um, there's really a, a lot of similarity, although it doesn't sort of... It tends more towards square-jawed heroics than the sort of, sort of 50s and 60s Americana that Charles Burns channels. Mm. Um, but yeah, I will check that out because I, I really love him as an artist. But the Mr. Mamoulian stuff is very different, much sketchier style. More more cartoony, these the words advisedly, but um, not as a derogatory term. Mm. Well, Mr. Cobbley, we've um, kind of whiffled a little bit. What have, what have you got for us in this hypothetical exhibition? What's, what's going to be in the Dave Condrey display case? Just my corpse, my face stretched into an endless 
nightmarish Richter's grin that will haunt you forever. I was hoping you might say Richter's grin. <laughs> uh, I'd say um, Adam Teen. Mm. Um, because Adam Teen looks hysteria bollocks. Looks, yeah, it looks at an element of um, British culture that you generally don't um, don't encounter. So we've talked about 2000 AD, and we've sort of mentioned the Beano and things like that. And there's a lot of a lot of comics are the subversive characters. They are the people who are thumbing their nose at authority, and and they sort of take on that sort of slightly more heroic or at least active um, part of the sort of popular imagination in British culture. Uh, Adam Teen, by dint of having no one who's particularly sympathetic in it, looks at the sort of curtain twitching, um, red top reading, reactionary, and in the end kind of cowardly uh, elements of of national character. Oh, but more than that as well. So there's the editor, there's the there's, there's the whole ecosystem of people that enabled or participated in the hysteria around the moon case that it takes in. It's it's that sort of huge in the late nineties, early two thousands court of the public public opinion thing. Yeah, Rebecca Brooks, basically. Yeah, the sort of. It's it's not it's, it, like the the pedo the, the pedophilia hysteria stuff that um, Brass Eye the Brass Eye special mm. went to town on. It, it's kind of set in that moment of uncomprehending howling. Yeah. So there's um there's a the, God, so the, the the broad overview without trying to give away too much <laughs> is that is that um there is a there are a series of people on a train being stalked by some sort of supernatural force and they all have links through large actions, small actions, influencing culture, um, or just electing to inaction, um, they all have some sort of contribution to a man's death. Um, a man who may or may not be innocent, it's never quite clear. But, but a man who on some level they were either directly believed or were happy to allow people to believe was guilty of terrible things and to some extent deserved it. Yeah, yeah, it follows a more muscular line from an inspector calls in a way. Mm. It's not the death of a charming innocent shop girl, it's the death of someone probably repellent of them. Mm. Yes, but nonetheless. Um, and yeah, I think that's. There's not many things that, that look at that, so I think it's worth, worth mentioning. Yeah. I think the broader strokes of, um, of British comics are the. Are the sort of anarchic and subversive comics? But Alantine skewers some of that sort of hypocrisy and hysteria stuff. That yeah, I've just not. The, I've just not really seen that. That I'm least proud of living in an in an amongst. Um, one person who sort of is definitely worth mentioning, and definitely was mentioned at Comics Unmasked, is um, Brian Talbot, mm. um, who did sort of. A lot of early 2000 AD, he did his own stuff with Luther Arkwright, and of course with Mary Talbot did um, uh, Daughter of Father's, Father's Eyes, Eyes and um, uh, the recent suffragette graphic novel they've done together. Um, what was he blended the only did the, the layoffs and he, um, So Roger, you were talking about sort of 
structure and boundaries around the general anarchic uh, sense mm. in, in, in British character. Tell us what you mean. Finish eating your nuts. Is this back to the whole what's wrong with the British porn industry thing? No. Right. Um, Spend too long licking the sword off the nuts, and that's what's wrong with it. Mm. No, so <clears throat> this is something that I remember very much from my own childhood. Um, kind of my dad's attitude to Britishness and the establishment, but I also, it was called out for me. I hadn't realised I was thinking about this until I read Neil Stevenson's Diamond Age. Um, one of the secondary characters says to one of the protagonists that one of the things he's very concerned about in his national character, which is kind of a weird pantomime Britishness, is the is everything becoming a bit anodyne and no one value, valuing subversion. And I thought about this and I cheated over and I realised there is something like, say, Private Eye being both a pillar of and a part of the establishment but also an occasional irritant to it, or like everyone's prep school smutty underground magazine. Um, or, or like Dennis the Menace, I guess. Where Wipers Times was something you mentioned. Wipe, yes, as well. Wipers Times. We, we're able to value the Wipers Times and Blast with the same misty-eyed affection that we might do our great granddad's Victoria Cross or something. It's kind of there's a tremendous value placed on bounded, measured subversion. Um, this, this this idea of joking at our own ridiculousness of tweaking the nose of the establishment, but of, of never quite rocking the boat and never quite pushing anything over. And you, you, the, the, the comics on Master Exhibition did this did this quite strongly in that it was talking about subversion, but it was at pains to back it up as having been historic, historically precedented. So you got the um, Police Times, Police Illustrated, whatever it was, the, the, the thing that did the gory pencil sketches of the Jack the Ripper killings, they displayed next to some of the nastier bits of From Hell. And some of the profanity stuff they were keen to pin a historical long tail on and they tried to authorise the sillier stuff with things like Punch or early Victorian ma magazines. And this idea that they, they, were, they were very keen on, on drawing a lineage through the a lineage through the mischief. Both to show that comics aren't just new, but new, but also the kind of I don't know. It what this it was ever thus vibe that comics are mischievous British comics are not mischievous. Part of its argument, I thought, was that mischievous British comics are not mischievous because they're comics, but they're mischievous because they're British. And that this very safe mischief is very much a part of the Britishness that they were handling. And I think there's something in that. I do. I think that presumably leads into when there's very little where you can say, well, this, this is the effect that it had. Mm. It's tied up in that. It's only pushing so far. I suppose the this was ever thus part of it is a giveaway. Mm. Oh yes, when you incorporate satire into the establishment, you yeah. defang it comprehensively. If we're constantly able, if we're constantly able to and expect ourselves to take the piss out of ourselves, then we're never going to have a revolution. But as a self-deprecating nation, what are you going to do? Well, yeah. Quietly complain about things. <laughs> yes, damn it. Yes, it can't be true subversion if you're repeating existing patterns. And it makes it okay to complain. So, the herd is a good deal less cowed, but the not being cowed is very ineffectual. It's kind of an empty complaint, isn't it? Mm. As long as you've sounded it, I think it's alright. I don't know. I, so, you, you can so see a whole load of sound and fury signifying nothing. Oh. Yes, but what everyone forgets about that is that the next line is enter a messenger. 
It has an instruction. So it works on a line, but yes, the next thing that happens is that someone comes in and state. <laughs> What's that bike film you were talking about? <laughs> bike no. Boys 3, I believe it was. We'll put it in the show notes. Biker Boys 3, enter a messenger. Mm. No, so after our sound of fear is signifying nothing. Um, is that the same speech as tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and Anyway, my, yeah. if it is, that kind of doubles it up. But the messenger then comes in and delivers a report about what's about what's been going on. Um, really heavily pregnant with overworked significational gubbins. And sorry, it's one of my one of my bugbears that that, that whole montage is is something of a joke. No one ever. Enough of Roger gets pissy about Shakespeare. Yeah, that guy just hasn't hasn't had enough of a kicking. Oh god, no, no, it, it's, it's... I, I, I love that scene. It's just that it's been misinterpreted. Well, incompletely. But you have the solution. Lots of people do. I, I'm basically repeating what the guy that taught me the Shakespeare paper at uni impressed upon us about that. I like the funny ones. Oh, like Hamlet. <laughs> Hamlet's pretty funny. No, it actually is. You could, um... <coughs> You could produce a roughly one and a half hour cut of Hamlet that would basically be a broad stroke, structurally correct farce. People would die, be a bit weird, but you could, there, there is actually... People die in farces. Let's do it. Let's put the show on right here. <laughs> we'll save the community centre. <laughs> no, seriously, there's a lot of stuff in there. Like, uh, so if you take a, a full cut and shut text Hamlet, there is no official text of Hamlet because there are multiple um, orig original texts. Um, you've got, like, there's a folio, quarto, and some other bits and blocks, but if you take, like, the current um, Arden Hamlet, that runs to about three and a half hours if you put the whole thing on, because they fused all of the possible text together and smoothed it over the edges. But the core story is about an hour and a half of that, maybe two hours, and if you make an aggressive trim, you can get a really good comedy out of it. Oh, really good by the standards of once you, as we were discussing about the tank a lot, once you've got your ear into the language and you naturalised to it. Yeah, I think, wasn't it Stephen Fry's useful way of um, doing well in, in essays was to always answer his own question and thoroughly into his lines of Shakespeare's comedies, tragedies, Shakespeare's tragedies, comedies, and mm. sort of set answer you can insert. Well, so you, yes, that's what I do. Not exactly, but you, um, there's a rough pattern to what's going to be asked, so you prepare an answer to one of the themes, and your range of shoehorning is quite limited. So, what does Englishness mean to you? Not the bit with the bulldogs and the Union Jack pants and the screaming. Yeah, um, to me, I think, there's the misty-eyed sort of cream and England. <laughs> Mike will go bollocks 1950s that never happened version. And to me it's kind of the defanged, actually funny version of that, the sort of cricket whites and not taking yourself too seriously. But both the pageantry bit and also the, the subversion to me is I think that's broadly true of my feeling as well. Although I think I would probably caveat the, with that with the fact that there is a certain element that 
sort of the net product of all available culture to you is is important as is how a country treats people but in terms of everything that sort of is put out in in terms of comics art and what we're talking about had enormous influence on me Mm. Um, and has made me the angry socialist with an English accent that I am today so thanks for that British comics rich Anglo-Irish tradition down from the big house (laughs) (laughs) yes well I did move here after the uh, no Irish signs had been taken down (laughs) I put some back up for you Do you want to talk about Cromwell? Not particular. Do you have any particular views on? It's actually surprised me as we've talked about this. Things that I thought might be missing from an idea of Englishness are are actually completely present, satirised, and done nothing with. Which is probably why I thought they weren't present in the first place. Hmm. The unpleasant aspects of Britishness. I think it's time to just quietly ossify as a, you know, a, a sort of gently deteriorating Northern European state and just sit there pointing at our own things and occasionally making dick jokes. Well, ossify means having a boat. Yes, yes, brilliant. See, it's done. Continue. I don't know. Every time I walk through Cambridge Town Centre, which is which is becoming just achingly faux fifties like it's all very very cath kids and artisan jam and I just realised that a functioning well constituted society would, would just have no use for duck egg blue it might be quite soothing on the walls of an asylum it rather good on the underside of a spitfire I should even have no trees that's probably what Kath Kitson is working towards. The sinister phase two of Kath Kitson. Yeah. You never see them coming out of the sun. <laughs> One of those little rocket launches that's um, firing into Ukraine. Next season, yes. Little vinyl polka dots along the side of it, just uh, matching the twin set. It's going to cost about four times more than it should. Which is probably useful, to be honest. Well, we've solved all of geopolitics. That was quick. <laughs> Again, <laughs> gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. Yes. Well, not you, Hart, because you're always here. But, uh, Mr. Well, I'm Harris. always here, but I do rather like it, so I think I'll be coming back. I can heartily recommend the cocktails of rules. Yes, all right, sound. Um, Mr. Harris, thank you for uh, entertaining us, contributing, keeping us on an even keel, <laughs> not murdering us. Yes. Mm-hmm. Night is young. I'm working on a long-term plan which involves liver dysfunction. And with that, good night.